Hello everyone, this is Krishna Massar with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Today what we'll be talking about are the bear and the beaver. <laughs> now we're, it sounds like uh, some kind of a, a kid's show, uh, but uh, what I'm going to be talking about is the are the relations between Russia and Canada since the Euromaidan protests in Ukraine in 2013 and 14, and some of the foreign policy uh, or the relations dynamics since that point. So I just want to put out a little caveat before my usual Patreon pitch. I recorded most of this episode in mid-January, and now I'm releasing it in late February. So um, really the only update I can really think about that's really important to mention here is that since I started recording this episode, the New START Treaty was extended by the U.S. United States and the Russian Federation. So it was extended by another five years in early February, um, but that is the only major change that I can think of that I do need to mention since I'm releasing this episode a month later than I started recording. Dear listeners, thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and I hope that you've been enjoying the thoughts given in the episodes. But I would like to ask if you would consider making a pledge to the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast on Patreon. I have many projects in mind for this podcast, and the books, paper, and so on needed to produce the episodes will not be free. Help keep historical thoughts flowing so that we can interpret the past and learn from it. You may pledge any amount that you like, and whatever you choose to give will be appreciated. Thanks a lot, and let's get back to the episode. Since the 2013 and 14 Euromaidan protests in Kiev, relations between Russia and Canada have been strained greatly. This is due to the two countries' support of opposing sides involved in the ongoing Ukrainian crisis. In addition to consistently reiterating its support of the NATO alliance, Canada has backed the Western-oriented Kievan government, of former President Petro Poroshenko and current President Volodymyr Zelensky. The, the, and this Western-oriented government has replaced the, what one might say, the Russian-leading government of former President Viktor Yanukovych after he fled to Russia during the Euromaidan protests themselves. Conversely, Russia has also expressed fears about fascist movements in Kyiv, tried to defend its diplomatically unrecognized acquisition of Crimea, and retaliated against Western sanctions, including those of Canada. These interactions have taken place under two different Canadian prime ministers. This is as of early 2021, and the interactions between Russia and Canada over the Ukraine crisis happened under two Canadian prime ministers, Steve, conservative Stephen Harper and liberal Justin Trudeau. Today we'll be looking at the diplomatic relationship between the Russian and Canadian governments over the course of the Ukraine crisis. In September 2012, Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Russian President Vladimir Putin met briefly during an APEC summit. The relationship was seemed cozy at this meeting, with Putin citing, quote, good experience in cooperating on both a personal level and an interstate level. Putin talked about chances for economic cooperation with Canada and working together in the Arctic. Putin also took the opportunity to congratulate Canada on the quality of its hockey players. Stephen Harper replied favorably to Putin's words, agreeing that more work should be done in the Arctic, and he lamented the lack of advantages taken on the economic field between the two countries. He also congratulated Putin on his country's entry into the World Trade Organization and for Russia's selections to be hosts of the Winter Olympics in 2014. By November 2014, however, the situation had changed completely. 
This time, there was no friendly hockey talk. At the G20 summit in Australia, Putin approached Harper for a handshake, to which the Canadian leader is said to have replied, quote, I guess I'll shake your hand, but I have only one thing to say to you. You need to get out of Ukraine. To this, Putin apparently said, that's impossible because we are not there. The political situation in Ukraine had driven a wedge between these two leaders, leading to Harper's famous response at the G20 meeting. These events have been described in multiple news and academic sources, so I'm not going to be spending a whole lot of time explaining the events in much detail here, other than some key events and dates. So just to summarize briefly, in November 2013, the Euromaidan demonstration started in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. The gatherings were supporting the country's prospective agreements with the European Union, but over time they became protests against Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych and his corrupt government. By February 18, 2014, the Euromaidan protests in the city had turned violent, killing a few protesters and police officers as well. The Russian government saw European and American politicians as being behind the anti-Yanukovych movement. And eventually, the beleaguered Ukrainian president ran to Russia on February 23rd. With the chaos still raging in Kiev, Russian commandos appeared in the Crimean Peninsula a few days later. Government buildings were occupied, and eventually the whole region was taken. The local politicians elected a new government, which chose to hold a referendum for decreased oversight from Kiev. This blossomed into a vote for joining Russia itself, which was announced for March 16th. The vote passed and Crimea was added to Russian territory two days after that. So what were some of Canada's responses under Stephen Harper? Since Yanukovych's fall and Russia's annexation of Crimea, the Canadian government's goals have consistently been to force Russia to, quote, respect Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Anti-Russian economic sanctions have been the diplomatic weapons meant to achieve this aim, and these sanctions are readily available on the Canadian government's Global Affairs website. Under the Special Economic Measures Act, which was passed on March 17, 2014, these sanctions forbid Canadians from performing business transactions with or providing economic assistance to the listed people and organizations. The sanctions list has been added to over time, with most recent amendments being made on March 14, 2019. Before Viktor Yanukovych fled to Russia, some sanctions were drawn up against his government on March 5, 2014, for his suppression of free speech and corruption. The goal of these sanctions was to support democracy and political accountability in Ukraine. Days later, the Canadian government imposed sanctions upon persons in the Crimean Peninsula who were, who were collaborating with the Russians, who had been sending troops to occupy the region, and who, of course, later acquired the peninsula through the internationally condemned referendum. After this, the additional sanctions were continuously being placed upon Russian officials, banks, and corporations for that country's role in the Ukrainian crisis. The United States and the European Union also imposed sanctions of their own. The goal of Canadian sanctions was to uh, hurt Pre President Putin and also the Russian economy without hurting the Canadian economy in return. During the 2015 Canadian election campaign, Stephen Harper noted that Canada had created the longest list of anti-Russian sanctions. So I want to note some exceptions here. In August 2015, during the Canadian election campaign that year, the former New Democratic Party 
NDP leader Thomas Mulcair sharply criticized the Harper government for excluding Russian businessman Igor Sechin, who Mulcair said was on the sanctions list of Canada's allies and had close ties to Vladimir Putin. The NDP leader also mentioned the exception made for Vladimir Yakunin, the head of Russia's railways and co-founder of Bank Russia, who also had a ceremonial position in Russia's government. Igor Sechin was the CEO of Rosneft, a Russian oil field company. Despite Mulcair's criticism, Rosneft was actually added to the Canadian sanctions list in February 2015. According to the Russian media outlet RT, or Russia Today, Rosneft owned 30% of an ExxonMobil oil field in Alberta, explaining Sechin's not being among those sanctioned. Sergei Chernezov was also not initially on Canada's sanctions list, and he owned a company called Rostec. Rostec was involved with the Canadian aircraft manufacturer Bombardier, and in negotiations for the selling of several Canadian-built transportation aircraft to Russia. In these exclusions, Harper was asserting his government's aim to hurt Russia's economy without affecting Canada's. It must be noted that Igor Sechin and Vladimir Yakunin were added to Canada's sanctions list four years later, in 2019, in the most recent Canadian uh, amendments adding sanctions. According to the short searching I did, I did not see Rostec or RGD, Russia's railway company, uh, being on Canada's sanctions list. In addition to the sanctions, in March 2014, Russia was also excluded from the Group of Eight meetings, or the G8 meetings. The organization's members, Canada, United States, Japan, Italy, France, Germany, and Britain, unanimously agreed to meet without Putin's attendance due to his government's involvement in Ukraine. Stephen Harper took a very hard position on this issue, pushing for Russia's expulsion from the group and not wanting the country to rejoin even while Putin was in power. At the time, Ukraine's Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk offered to take Russia's former spot. Harper's government punished Putin in other ways. In early March 2014, around the same time that the sanctions were first being imposed, Stephen Harper announced the suspension of all military cooperation with Russia. Planned meetings and exercises were cancelled. At this point, Canadian-Russian relations were, quote, under revision, the Prime Minister said. Nine Russian servicemen, then taking language and military training in Canada, were expelled and sent back, quote, without delay. According to the Russian Ministry of Defense, the Canadian government had caused, quote, severe damage to relation between the two countries by deciding to quickly deport the soldiers. One month later, after the nine Russian soldiers' expulsion from Canada, Canada also decided to end cooperation with Russia on the M3M sat military satellite over the situation in Ukraine. This Canadian spacecraft was manufactured for the purposes of naval reconnaissance, and it was originally planned that a Russian Soyuz rocket system would send it into space from Kazakhstan of June 19, 2014. Russia's Deputy Prime Minister Dmitry Gozin said that Canada must pay for the cancellation, and he accused Canada of hiding the satellite's true military purpose by claiming it was a civilian project. On October 1st, another company was found to perform the launch from India in 2015. Speaking as well of uh, space exploration and space technology, in September 2014, some Russians were denied Canadian visas to go to a space conference in Canada. Though, however, one of those affected, cosmonaut Sergei Krikalev, claimed that he had taken too long to apply for the visa. However, the Russian government and space agency believed that these visa denials were politically motivated surrounding the Russian-Canadian dispute over Ukraine. However, some Chinese people were also denied visas to attend the conference. 
Returning to military affairs, since April 16, 2014, Canada has also participated in Operation Reassurance, which is a series of military deployments and exercises in Central and Eastern Europe meant to reassure the NATO alliance and Ukraine. Canadian CF-18 fighter jets, land forces, and naval ships were deployed to the region, and Canadian military personnel have held various exercises like Sabre Strike, Operation Open Spirit, and Iron Sword. The Canadian patrol ship HMCS Regina was also deployed to the Black Sea in 2014, and as recently as January 1st, 2021, the HMCS Halifax was assigned to Operation Reassurance on a six-month tour. According to information on the Canadian government's website about Operation Reassurance, the country's mission, quote, helps make Central and Eastern Europe more secure and stable. It also shows that this Canadian Armed Forces is a professional force that is ready for any task. End quote. Canada's participation was part of the overall NATO buildup of combined naval, ground, and air forces in the Baltic and Eastern European regions, which was meant to deter Putin and reassure allies. And in addition to, quote, loud support for the new government in Ukraine, Canada also gave direct support to the Ukrainian military, as Canadian specialists have been sent to Ukraine to train local soldiers and military police. According to an April 2015 Huffington Post article, 200 Canadian soldiers were in Ukraine performing these training missions. Canada also sent non-lethal military equipment to the Ukrainian army, such as night vision goggles and clothing. It was clear that Stephen Harper was trying to keep his promise to support and protect Ukraine and the Baltic states, citing the Soviet Union's annexation of the Baltic in 1939 as an example of Russian aggression in Eastern Europe. During the September 28, 2015 Monk Party leaders' debate on foreign policy, Harper firmly stated this. I have met with Mr. Putin uh, many times, and everybody knows, of course, when it came to Ukraine, I've made it very clear to Mr. Putin that Canada, uh, this country, is never going to tolerate or accept under any circumstances his occupation of Ukrainian territory. You know, this was a position we took with the Baltic states, annexed by the Soviet Union in 1939. We held to this position with our allies for over 50 years, and when the time came, those countries became independent. I've said to President Poroshenko and others that this country will continue to work with our allies to make sure we never in any way uh, re recognize or accept Russian occupation of any square inch of Ukrainian territory. Earlier in 2015, Harper also said that Russia was to leave Crimea and separatist-held Ukraine, quote, whether it takes five months or 50 years. Now we must go to after the Canadian election and enter Justin Trudeau. Liberal Party leader Justin Trudeau's record on Vladimir Putin and Ukraine has been somewhat spotty at times, and his comments about them have been controversial. In 2014, for example, almost about a year and a half before he was elected, as the Euromaidan protests were escalating in violence, a talk show host asked Trudeau's views on the situation. Now that it had appeared that Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych had lost his legitimacy, Trudeau pointed to the worrisome possibility of Russian involvement, joking that this was because they had lost the chance to win a medal in hockey at the Sochi Olympics. It's very worrying, he said, especially because Russia lost in hockey. They'll be in a bad mood. We fear Russia's involvement in Ukraine. By this moment, people had died over the course of the protests, and Trudeau's efforts to, quote, make light of the violent situation left many offended, including the then Ukrainian ambassador to Canada. John Baird, the then-conservative foreign affairs minister, jumped upon Trudeau's joke, adding it to the liberal head's pattern of, quote, pattern of careless words, such as 
comments about budgets balancing themselves and having good things to say about communist governments. By the time of the 2015 election campaign, however, Trudeau put on a much more serious face regarding Putin and Ukraine. He called Putin a, quote, bully, calling him a destabilizing influence in Eastern Europe, Syria, and the Arctic. The Liberal candidate seemed to take a suggestion from Stephen Harper's behavior at the G20 summit in Australia, for Trudeau said that he would say such things directly to Putin's face. Trudeau supported the use of sanctions against Russia. Trudeau's quip about the Olympics did seem to haunt him, however. At the 2015 Monk leaders' debate on foreign policy, Justin Trudeau was asked a question about how he would deal with Vladimir Putin. Let's listen to the question and to the response. Let's move on to uh, the last of our three rapid reaction discussions. You're all aware, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this, that the biggest foreign policy challenge of the moment surely is uh, the aggressive and unpredictable behavior of Russia on the world stage. Mr. Trudeau, uh, if you become prime minister, how will you deal with Vladimir Putin? I think there's no question uh, that we have to recognize that Russia has... It must be noted as well that Trudeau did give some serious answers after the audience's laughs. Uh, he's, again, he talked about Putin being a bully and a destabilizing influence. And the new Democratic Party leader, Thomas Mulcair, retaliated. The NDP stands four square with the people of Ukraine against this Russian invasion, and we will stay there for the long term. But it's interesting to hear Mr. Trudeau say what he's going to do with Mr. Putin. Mr. Trudeau, you can't even stand up to Stephen Harper on C-51. How are you going to stand up to Putin? Bill C-51 was a controversial conservative anti-terrorism law, which the Liberal Party supported in part. Regardless, Trudeau came to win the election of 2015, and he reiterated his party's election campaign message regarding Russia, telling Putin to, quote, stop interference in Ukraine. Canada's foreign policy had shifted in many ways from the, away from the Harper government, but the country still supported the pro-Western Ukrainian government. On March 18, 2016, the Trudeau government also imposed new sanctions against the Russians, bringing the number of sanctioned Russian persons to 93 and the number of organizations to 55. Since the latest round of sanctions from March 2019, the number of sanctioned persons was 118 and the number of sanctioned organizations was 69. As will be detailed later, the Liberals have also supported the NATO alliance against Russian uh, resurgence. The only thing that changed, the Liberals suggested, was an emphasis on dialogue. The Conservatives were perceived as giving Putin a cold shoulder and refusing to engage diplomatically. In response, they said to Russia's refusal to cooperate with the rest of the world, restating that the conservative position after his party's loss in 2015, foreign affairs critic Tolly Clement stated that it would be unwise to engage diplomatically with Putin until his interference in Ukraine stopped. Otherwise, the Russians would be encouraged, he thought, to continue their aggressive actions and eventually try to lift sanctions through diplomatic means. The new Democratic Party had similar fears. The new Trudeau government wished to open the way to, negotiate, to the negotiating table with the Russians, stating that refusing to talk with the Russians would be unproductive. While still supporting Kyiv, it was important to see to the Liberals to state Canadian interests regarding Ukraine, quote, in a way that the Russian government can hear, said Pam Goldsmith-Jones, the parliamentary secretary to the foreign affairs minister. So this is a 
a common debate in the Western world and kind of the Russia watcher community. So there will be some that will say, we will have no reset with the Russians. We should have no reset whatsoever. We should have minimal contact, only work, only talk about vital things. Like, for example, there was the one of the two, uh, what I think have been called the two dueling Russia letters, where one said, we should have absolutely no reset with Russia, nothing at all. And uh, we can work with the Russians a little bit, but everything the Russians do, this is all based on them. They've started all of these problems. They've started all this, and there should be as little dialogue as possible. And so this was perhaps like clo more closer to the conservative party approach, while the liberals wanted to, yes, be tough on Russia with sanctions and uh, supporting NATO and supporting Ukraine, but also making sure that dialogue was also an option. So some might also say in one of, among one of those uh, dueling Russia letters, one of them was talking about we need to be able to engage with Russia not as the country we want it to be, but in the country that it is. So it's a bit more of a pragmatic approach. And some on that side of the argument might might argue that, you know, they're not going to have that no dialogue approach with China, for example. Um, they're not going to have that no dialogue approach with uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, a country that is um, uh, an ally of many Western countries, including the United States, but its record of uh, involvement in local countries as well has also been somewhat aggressive and also egregious and and so on. So somebody on somebody on the pragmatic side might say, look, Russia has done these things. Russia is an aggressive power. Yes, we do need to support NATO. We do need to be tough where necessary, but we need to have dialogue. And other things, I'm talking about sanctions, What there's also the concept of off-ramps. You need that off-ramp. So uh, they might suggest to the, they might try to send that message to those sanctioned Russian government uh, officials or somebody saying, if you're sanctioned, stop doing this. There's an off-ramp. There is an off-ramp. We can end these sanctions. We can back off if you stop this uh, behavior or stop this uh, support of the Russian government, or whatever. There's some kind of an off-ramp. The, the, so they might say that the risk of having a no-dialogue approach will be, well, <laughs> the, the, the Russian government will, will go into a position of, well, there's no interest in dialogue, so there, nothing's going to happen. There's no negotiating. There's nothing, so we will just keep acting in our own interest. And so, why do we? Why do the? Why would the Russians need to listen to the West if that's the case? So the conservatives were more taking a bit more of a hardline approach, saying that we should not negotiate, we shouldn't do this. While the liberals were saying we should be tough, but we should also have dialogue. A bit more of a pragmatic, bit more of a practical approach, bit more um, realistic in a way, and. Um, and in that kind of a thing, and being allowing for those, allowing for that dialogue to to happen, all right. And that's a, that's a consistent debate, uh, not just in Canada, but in the United States, uh, in in Western Europe as well. Like how to deal with it. Certain governments will have different approaches uh, to this as well. So th this was this was not just a Canadian thing. 
But getting getting back to specifically Canada. <laughs> so it is evident from that aside from differing attitudes toward dip, towards diplomatic engagement, Canadian policy regarding Ukraine remarked largely the same between the Harper Conservatives and the Trudeau Liberals. An area of concern has been the effectiveness of the Minsk Peace Accords, two agreements signed by Russia, Ukraine, Germany, and France in September 2014 and February 2015. Under the Accords, both sides were supposed to remove heavy weapons and foreign fighting units from the war zone in eastern Ukraine, exchange all prisoners, and allow observers from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or the OSCE. These OSCE observers were to be allowed free passage into the region and investigate. In exchange for regaining its pre-2014 state borders, Ukraine was also obligated to decentralize its government, giving more autonomy to regions such as the separatist-controlled Donbass regions, Luhansk and Donetsk. Under the second Minsk agreement, Minsk II, France and Germany were to act as, quote, guarantors for the pro-Western Ukrainian government. Russia would do the same for the breakaway pro-Russian Donetsk and Luhansk people, People's Republics, or DPR and LPR. While Prime Minister Stephen Harper expressed some optimism over the Minsk agreements, but he was skeptical that Vladimir Putin would implement his side of the deals. Uh, for example, exercising positive influence on the DPR and the LPR, and also stopping Russian support of those factions. Pam Goldsmith-Jones, in an interview with Canadian media, admitted there was no progress on Russia's side of the Minsk agreements. The government said the following during its edition of sanctions in March 18, 2016. Ceasefire violations and skirmishes increased in December 2015. This was almost a year after the Minsk II Treaty. And skirmishes occur on a da near daily basis in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of eastern Ukraine. The SMM, this is the OSCE Special Monitoring Mission, has noted concerns over live fire exercises, shelling in separatist-controlled areas and by multiple launch rocket systems, as well as a mounting number of tragic incidents involving mines and unexploded ordnance along the line of contact. Russian-backed separatist insurgents frequently deny OSCE-SMM observers access to areas under their control. With these failures to implement the Minsk agreements, the Trudeau government is unlikely to drop sanctions, despite its softer position as compared to the conservatives. Prime Minister Trudeau's policy towards Putin has been described as a combination of, quote, hard and soft power, with a larger emphasis on soft power than the previous administration. While reaching out to the Russians with diplomacy and soft power, his liberal government, as mentioned, still participated in NATO exercises, the hard aspect of his policy. The previously mentioned Iron Sword exercise was concluded in December 2016, more than a year after Trudeau's election. This operation, which took place in Lithuania, involved more than 4,000 soldiers from various NATO members. The Prime Minister's previous soft comments about Russia have cast doubts upon its commitment to Ukraine and his NATO partners. This concern had some merit concerning Trudeau's history on the Ukraine subject, but his, but his actions after being elected are at least generally in line with NATO's approach, which has been, again, to engage in military deployments and drills, while simultaneously taking part in political dialogue with Russia, especially through the NATO-Russia Council. During such meetings, the Atlantic Alliance and Russia have agreed to increase transparency over military exercises. NATO has called upon Russia to influence the DPR-LPR rebels, and it has criticized Vladimir Putin for not implementing Minsk II due to ceasefire violations and the failure to remove heavy weapons. Before proceeding to Russia's response to Canadian actions regarding Ukraine, we should look at one area of Canadian-Russian cooperation that has 
well, until very recently, been largely unaffected. This is the Open Skies Treaty, which has been in effect since 1992. This treaty was an effort at arms control, and it allows signatory countries to fly unarmed aircraft over each other's territories. During the flight, photos may be taken and information can be gathered regarding military deployments and other relevant information. On the website for the Russian Ministry of Defense, one can find information on many of these open sky missions. Uh, just looking at some of the some of the more um, uh, some of the period more immediately after the Euromaidan protests and Trudeau's election and so on, just looking kind of between 2014 and 2016. Uh, between October 13th and 18th, 2014, the Russians flew a Tupolev Tu-154 aircraft from Trenton, Ontario over Canadian territory with Canadian observers on board. From October 20th to 25th, the same plane flew over American territory from the Trevis Airfield in California. In July 2016, Canadian crews in return flew an AC-130 Hercules cargo plane on a similar mission over Russia, based at an airfield in Siberia. And in October 2016, Canadian and Spanish pilots flew such sorties over Russia and Belarus. In each case, specialists from the host countries accompanied other nations' flight crews, and the aircraft flew along previously agreed-upon routes. So these are examples of what the Open Skies Treaty is in practice. So it's meant to provide transparency. So countries that are in part of that are part of the Open Skies Treaty were are able to fly their own airplanes and have host observer host countries observers on board. So this is a way of saying like if there are Russian deployments in Siberia, Canadian airplanes are able to fly over and observe them. And Russians are able to do the same thing over Canada. And the reason I say until very recently is that the fact that the Americans withdrew from the Open Skies Treaty uh, in November 2020. The Trump administration wanted to pull out of that treaty as well over uh, what they saw as Russian violations. And so what I mean by, so Russia and Canada and other countries were still in this treaty, uh, even with the American pulling Americans pulling out of the treaty but now, very recently, mid-January, the Russian government has indicated its intention to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty. And the reason for this, what the Russian government has said, this is not a signal to the, in, the very brand new Biden administration. This is not, they, they were claiming this is not a kind of a bargaining chip to withdraw from the Open Skies Treaty to get something out of uh, the new, yes, President Biden. Rather, they, the Russians have also had concerns about other signatories of the treaty. Those, So, for example, Western European allies of the United States sharing intelligence with the Americans who were no longer part of the treaty. This was one concern that has been brought up. And so now with the Russians leaving the treaty, you know, that area of potential cooperation between Canada and Russia are gone. So now with Russia and the United States both leaving the treaty, uh, we'll have to see what happens, of course. Maybe the Biden and uh, Putin administrations will sign the Open Skies Treaty. After all, both governments have been very interested in re-signing or extending the New START Treaty, which is to restrict uh, nuclear weapons arsenals. So who knows? I am by no means an expert on the Open Skies Treaty, but who knows? Maybe it's possible that the Putin and Biden presidencies 
will work together to to re-sign both America and Russia onto the Open Skies Treaty. I, I I would be I wouldn't be surprised if they do that, because both have been interested in extending arms control treaties despite all other disagreements, despite all other quarrels. But now going back to Canada and Russia, how will this affect Canadian and Russian cooperation? We can't exactly say. Uh, now that Russia wants to leave the treaty. And and by the way, when this was happening, so these f- example flights that I've listed from 2014 to 2016, and there have been some um, since then, I'm not sure exactly how many, but that has been going on since then as well. Um, and all of that was happening, despite former Prime Minister Stephen Harper's refusal to cooperate militarily with the Russian Federation. And this was regardless of Trudeau's continued support of anti-Russian sanctions and NATO drills, and Operation Reassurance. So even when the Canadian government, both Harper's and Trudeau's, have been tough on Russia regarding sanctions and uh, supporting NATO and supporting Ukraine, they have still been operating the... they've still been operating under the Open Skies Treaty. But, again, that was as of until just... uh, right now, it's uh, January 27th, 2021. This was just up until... About about a week and a half ago, or a week ago, <laughs> so so we'll have to see what happens then. Um, so this will be an interesting uh, interesting thing. Maybe a few years if uh, Russia and the U.S. decide to rejoin the Open Skies Treaty uh, in a few year within a few years, it'll be interesting. This will be an interesting record of just after the two major countries, Russia and the United States, have left the treaty. Now that we've looked at Canada's response to the Ukrainian crisis, we'll now look at Russia's reaction to Canada's actions. The Russian government, as reported in the Canadian news outlet The Globe and Mail in March 2014, said that Canada's responses were part of a, quote, war without weapons. To look at Russia's actions in this war, we will look at the counter-sanctions. According to the same Globe and Mail article, the Russian government accused Canada of provoking the situation by passing sanctions. Vladimir Putin initially said that passing counter-sanctions would cause international harm. So the question of sanctions was not to be answered too quickly, he said, and the battle of sanctions would ultimately be unproductive. The Russian ambassador to Canada, Alexander Darchiev, who had been appointed in January 2015, repeated Putin's words and added that, quote, sanctions are a double-edged sword. They hurt both sides involved, he said, because Canadian businesses now have less freedom to act in Russian markets. The previously mentioned Igor Sechin, the CEO of oil company Rosneft, repeated this line. Sechin said that sanctions would, in fact, quote, endanger Europe's security of supply, considering that Russia is an oil exporter to Europe. Russian media reported that the European Union was somewhat divided over the issue of sanctions, and the economic battle with Russia cost Europe $24 million U.S. Indeed, Walter LeCure notes that in spite of numerous grievances and despite European sanctions against Russia, Europe has historically been highly dependent on Russian oil supplies, and Russia has imported a lot of luxury goods from Europe. In a September 2016 interview with Bloomberg, Vladimir Putin himself stated that Russia keeps, quote, 40% of its gold and foreign currency reserves in euros. 
The European-Russian relationship and the sanctions between them is outside the scope of this podcast. Uh, although, good to mention that European, the European Union keeps extending sanctions. There's still debate on how to operate with Russia and how to... Um, how to interact with Russia since Europe is so close and there's a lot there is a lot of connection between Europe and Russia but uh, overall consistently the European Union has voted to extend the sanctions um, and who knows there could be also some new ones too since uh, Alexei Navalny has returned to Russia on January 17th and was arrested almost immediately and also the the protests and his subsequent uh, sentencing uh, which put him in two, oh, for about two and a half years behind behind bars now. So there might be some more sanctions in that, but again, back to the topic at hand because we are talking about Russia and Canada. But it's worth noting that excessive economics restrictions between Europe and Russia would achieve exactly the opposite of what Stephen Harper wanted for his country, which was maximum damage against Putin while causing minimal damage to the Canadian economy. It then became a question of what was more important, trade or politics. Eventually, clearly, politics won this debate. In response to Canadian sanctions, Russia imposed restrictions of their own on March 24, 2014. Thirteen Canadians, including some Canadian politicians who have been involved in human rights work, were barred access to Russia. The president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, Paul Grod, was also on this list. Canadian politicians who have been banned from entering Russia include Christian Freeland, the current Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, and the former Minister of Foreign Affairs. Also, the former Conservative Party leader, Andrew Scheer, who became the leader after Stephen Harper stepped down after losing the 2015 election, Andrew Scheer has also been barred from entering Russia. It's less important to know which Canadians were placed under Russian sanction. We should also know what the Russian government thinks of the sanctions. Putin said they did not affect Russia as negatively as the West would have hoped. He admitted that if the West's sanctions had been imposed in the early 2000s, when Russia's economy was much weaker, they would have hurt a lot. But in 2016, with a much stronger economy, Russia could withstand the pressure of sanctions, he said. The opinions of two of my friends, for example, who both live in Russia, are worth mentioning. And uh, one friend said that since the sanctions, consumer goods have increased in price, but the trade restrictions also encouraged Russian producers to replace the banned goods, which in the long term would be good for the local economy. My other friend went even further, in fact, thanking the West for the anti-Russian sanctions. He said that the sanctions have pushed the Russian economy to reform and improve itself. And in reaction, the Russian people would actually gather around Putin, not rebel against him, because he stood against Western efforts. And, you know, it experienced an ill-informed efforts at that <laughs> to weaken the economy. According to this view, not only were the sanctions minimal in their effects, they actually served to strengthen Putin's hold on power and the Russian government. Regarding this, there's been, you know, those are just anecdotal um, thoughts from, from friends of mine. But regarding this, there have been differing opinions. Some experts have claimed that sanctions would cause Russia to clamor against Putin, while others have said it would cause him to tighten control. A Bloomberg article printed a year after the sanctions were imposed said that the Russian economy was suffering from inflation and a slightly decreased standard of living. But sanctions and even the current current drop in oil prices was not affecting the Russian people to that to a great degree. 
The sanctions only affected a sliver of Russia's industry, according to this thing, according to this this research. And Putin's approval rating had actually risen from the start of the Ukrainian crisis in 2014, from 76%, according to the Globe and Mail, written just after Crimea's entry into Russia, to 86% in 20, February 2015. Mentioned a lot of the things that have been happening since then. Uh, for example, the Russian government has talked about uh, subsidizing the prices of, of eggs and, and certain household goods because of the rising living costs. And by no means is Russia a terrible country to live in, uh, I would argue, but, and I'm certainly not an economist, but I would argue it's not a terrible country to live in. In that way, however, uh, many of the recent uh, protests in support of Alexei Navalny have been citing not so much as support for Navalny, but as general, uh, general a mood of frustration towards the you know maybe lo lowering uh, living standards, increased cost of living, and so on, lack of perceived lack of opportunity. So these are some of those things, and this has happened. This is. You know, we're six years removed from uh, February 2015. And also, Putin's uh, approval rating has gone down um, overall due to certain things such as uh, the 2018 uh, raising of the pension, uh, pension age or raising the retirement age. Things like this, right? Putin would argue that the sanctions and being kicked out of the G8 only encouraged Russia to look in other directions. He's talked about a deepening economic relationship with China, and a lot has been made about uh, Russia and China's strategic alignment and maybe even an eventual alliance. Between 2013 and 2015, $90 billion in trade had been achieved with China, only $10 billion short of Putin's initial target. The sanctions, he said, have nothing to do with our relations with China because our relations with the People's Republic of China are at an unprecedented high, both in terms of their level and substance. End quote. Putin also talked about cooperation between Russia and China in space, railway, and engineering projects. The G20 was also much more important than the G8, according to many Russian officials. Putin himself commented that the non-Russian G8 members usually negotiated privately amongst themselves, leaving Russia out of the picture. Russia has other economic allies, not only in the G20, but also in the BRICS consortium. The BRICS consortium, of course, making and consisting of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The first BRICS meeting was held in June 2009, and Russia's membership in this body gives it more economic markets and avenues of cooperation, some of which Canada and the other Western countries may have closed due to sanctions and diplomatic isolation. An example of that is India, which has historically tried to maintain ties with both the Western world and the former Soviet Union. In October 2016, the Goa Declaration was, was drafted here between BRICS members. And in this declaration, member nations spoke of alignment with the United Nations and international law, support of democracy, and the sanctity of state borders. The declaration condemns unilateral military actions and interference in other, other countries' affairs. So Russia did have ways of, of reaching out to other countries through uh, the G20 and also the BRICS consortium. And also uh, keep in mind as well that Russia and India have uh, have fairly good relationship as well, despite uh, India and China having a very tense relationship. 
So Russia has um, Russia has many ways around uh, things like sanctions and so on. Now, what about Russia's other responses? So the talk about Mr. Harper's Russophobic government. Not only did Russia impose counter-sanctions against Canada, but Russian planes also started conducting flights very close to NATO territories, including that of Canada. These flights were outside of the previously mentioned Open Skies Treaty, being done with long-range bombers and transport planes. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, reported that in 2012 and 2013, Russia made 23 such flights, but in 2014, 52 of these flights occurred. This, according to Douglas Schoen and Evan Roth-Smith, forced NATO planes to intercept Russian aircraft many times. Some of these flights were obviously political statements. In December 2014, the then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko visited the Canadian Parliament and expressed gratitude for Canada's support of the Ukrainian military. The next day, Canadian fighter jets had to intercept a Russian strategic bomber that had flown close to Canada's coastline. Russia's relationship with Canada was particularly poor during Stephen Harper's time in power. Protesting the Canadian sanctions, Alexander Romanovich, an official in Russia's foreign ministry, said that the conservative government was being irrational. Indeed, the Russian government labeled Harper's actions in general as being based on, quote, ideology and not, quote, pragmatism. An article has appeared on the website Russia Insider, which accused Harper of destroying relations between Canada and Russia. The piece summarized the, quote, good, bad, and ugly events in Canada-Russian relations throughout history. Many of the bad and ugly things occurred under Harper's government, including the sanctions and pro-NATO posturing, to quote the article. Harper's behavior at the G20 summit, this was when he told Putin to get out of Ukraine, this behavior was called immature and sophomoric. The article brutally contrasts Harper with former Liberal Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, who was Prime Minister of Canada from 93 to 2003. While Harper wanted to keep Russia out of the G7, Chrétien helped Russia enter the G7. In January 2014, the Russian government even gave Chrétien an Order of Friendship award. Though this was before the Crimean crisis, the contrast in Russia's treatment of Chrétien and Harper is striking. Of course, the author of this Russia Insider article placed Kretzian's relationship with Russia in the good column alongside the Lend-Lease military aid given to the USSR during the Great Patriotic War. Kretzian also met with Vladimir Putin in 2015, which prompted the conservatives to reiterate their opposition to Putin's actions. There was another incident which had a somewhat personal flavor to it. A small Twitter fight. <laughs> of course, Twitter. Erupted between the Canadian and Russian militaries in August 2014. The Canadian delegation to NATO tweeted that, quote, geography is hard, and it offered to help Russia. It attached a map of Ukraine that included the Crimea. It wrote Ukraine within the country's pre-2014 borders, and Russia's territory was drawn red and labeled not Ukraine. The next day, the Russian mission to NATO offered a, quote, correction, and it included a map of its own that labeled Crimea as Russia. It was the Russian hope that the Canadians would, quote, catch up with the contemporary geography of Europe. After Justin Trudeau's election in 2015, Russian officials were fairly pleased. This was a welcome change for the Russian government, made evident when the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, labeled the Harper conservatives as Trudeau's, quote, Russophobic, mistaken predecessors. 
He accused the conservatives of as having missed opportunities for positive cooperation with Russia, and he said that Harper was simply following the will of the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada. Certainly, Canada's Ukrainian population is significant, as more than 1.2 million ethnic Ukrainians live in the country. This is the world's third largest population of ethnic Ukrainians, besides those populations in Ukraine and Russia. While Ukrainian Canadians have not historically voted for one particular party, Harper's conservatives had gained a fair amount of political capital with them because of his tough stance against Putin during the Ukrainian crisis. With the new Trudeau government, however, the Russians were optimistic about starting a, quote, new dialogue. The Russian ambassador to Canada, Alexander Dorchev, suggested that discussions could begin about Ukraine adopting a federal structure, and he pointed to Canada's own federal system to argue for this possibility. He wanted to move away from hostility, cold shoulders, and, quote, name-calling. Russia's offer to send equipment and firefighters to help with the Fort McMurray forest fire of 2016 was interpreted as a good indicator of improved Canada-Russia relations, resulting from Canada's change in government. What about Russia's responses to Canada regarding Crimea? During both the Harper and Trudeau periods, the Russian government had expressed a desire to discuss issues aside from Ukraine, including terrorism, trade, and the Arctic. Maxim Suchkov wrote an article for the website Russia Direct, in which he argued that Canada and Russia could cooperate on fighting terrorism. This piece was written in October 2014, shortly after Canada started bombing the Islamic State's territory. There was also an attack by an Islamic terrorist-inspired gunman on Parliament Hill. But Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula were closed issues. Crimea is Russia, said the Russian state. We have nothing to give back to Ukraine, Sergei Lavrov made clear. Canada would have to reconcile the fact that the peninsula was now Russian territory. The Canadian government was in fact accused of taking a hard line on the Crimean situation because it feared separatists in Quebec, which would otherwise be encouraged to have a referendum for independence themselves. Vladimir Putin has defended Russia's actions in Crimea, claiming that most of the Crimean population, 70%, were ethnically Russian, and many others speak the Russian language. As for the soldiers who occupied the Crimean Peninsula before the referendum, about whom Putin was initially very quiet, Putin justified this with the example of Odessa, another city in Ukraine. He said that if Russian troops were not there, the Crimean Peninsula would fall into chaos like Odessa did, where many people died in the violence between pro-Russian and pro-Western crowds. In having soldiers in Crimea, Putin claimed to be protecting the will of the people in that region. When Russia helped Crimea separate from what Russia saw as the illegitimate new government of Ukraine, Putin said that international law had in fact been obeyed. Kosovo has been used as an example to justify the addition of Crimea to Russia, and the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics as well. Kosovo's parliament had declared independence from Serbia in February 2008. Two years later, on July 22, 2010, the United Nations International Court of Justice ruled that, quote, the settlement of independence issues did not require the decision of a country's central authorities. This made Kosovo's separation from Serbia complete and legal, according to international rules, despite the fact that the Ukrainian constitution forbids the secession of any of its regions without the approval of an all-Ukrainian referendum, not just in Crimea. Putin and his supporters say, said that because of Kosovo, there was no reason Russia should be punished for the Crimean situation. A similar argument was used to justify the support of the Donetsk and Luhansk rebels. 
fearing fascism in western Ukraine, the largely pro-Russian southern and eastern Ukrainians allegedly asked the Russian government for help, to which Putin obliged. Interestingly, a Canadian author has expressed agreement with Putin's argument. John Ryan, a retired professor of geography with the University of Winnipeg, wrote an open letter to Stefan Dion, then Canada's foreign minister, on June 30th, 2016. The letter condemned the Trudeau government for following Stephen Harper's anti-Russian policy, which was, quote, quote, lockstep with the USA. It claimed that the Russian government's attitude towards Russia and Putin was badly misinformed because Crimea had the right to secede. Like Putin, Ryan said that Crimea's annexation into Russian territory was legal, according to the UN Charter and the precedent set in the Kosovo example. Russia also did not technically annex Crimea, the author said, because that region was not taken through force. Ryan's letter appeared on a website called The New Cold War, a Canadian-based but international and independent blog that is clearly in opposition to the pro-Western Ukrainian government. So we talked a little bit about Russia's response to sanctions, Russia's response to the Trudeau government, um, and now we want to talk about Russia's strategy and concerns. So with the space permitted here, we can hardly do justice to a proper study of Russia's grand strategy with regards to these issues. But we can arrive at an understanding of some of the Russian government's main concerns in its relationships with Canada, Ukraine, and NATO. It's evident that Ukraine and Eastern Europe is a very very important focus area for Russia. NATO's actions and expansions there are clearly worrisome to the Russian leadership. Though Ukraine is not a NATO member, it has been called a partner of the alliance. And also, I remember uh, reading as well that very shortly after Joe Biden became the president of the United States, there's more commitment to making Georgia and Ukraine you know, f- more integrate them into NATO and also s- support of Ukraine as well. As for Canada being in NATO, Putin acknowledged on the Kremlin's website that Justin Trudeau was under obligations to participate in NATO's European missions which could include a Canadian deployment of troops to Poland, for example. Essentially, Putin was saying that he could not force Canada to disobey or deny NATO, but he also warned that Russia would respond and needed to protect its own security. Russia has expressed fears of NATO's actions. The Russian ambassador to NATO, Alexander Grushko, stated that the alliance's counterproductive drills in Eastern Europe and the, quote, militarization of the Baltic states, along with the general attitude of, quote, Russophobia, had been prompting Russia to carry out the policies it has followed towards its neighbors. And this has long been a debate whether NATO expansion was a good idea, what would be a bit of better approach. Looking at it in the long game, the long term, was this a benefit? You know, this is a debate in Western scholarship as well. Both Grushko and the Russian president have talked about the Ballistic Missile Defense System, or the BMD, in Romania and Poland, the activation of which was finished in July 2016. Though the original purpose of the BMD was supposedly against Iranian nuclear weapons, the Russians found it strange and disconcerting that the system was still constructed after the nuclear deal was successfully made with Iran, the JCPOA, which has since been scrapped under the Trump administration. Because So before the Iran deal was scrapped, Iran was no longer a factor. So the BMD was considered a threat to Russia instead of a counter to Iran. This, expansions of NATO, the, this expansion of NATO's fighting capabilities, as well as its territorial expansion towards Russian borders since the end of the Cold War, makes the Russians greatly mistrust the Western alliance. And uh, 
A cultural fear of the West is also relevant in Russia. There's a significant concern among many Russians, and certainly among the government, that the pro-Western Euromaidan protests were a coup that included neo-Nazi elements, thus making the new Ukrainian government a hotbed of fascism. Both these fears, the Russian anxieties about Western culture and fascism in Ukraine, have been analyzed elsewhere, and you know I'm not going to be talking about that here. But one can look at Russian zapatophobia. This is um, like zapad, taking the Russian word for West, so a fear of the West. This was the opposite of Russophobia. So Stanislav Bishok and Alexei Kochikov have published an entire book about fascist group during the Maidan, entitled Neo-Nazis and Euromaidan, From Democracy to Dictatorship. In this book, they argue that the legitimate grievances of Ukrainian protesters at Maidan were replaced with the neo-Nazi ideologies of nationalist groups like Svoboda and Right Sector, and also the Azov group. But the fear of fascism in Ukraine is relevant in one aspect. In 2014, Russia had spearheaded a proposed resolution in the United Nations. The legislation was intended to combat the glorification of Nazism, halt the spread of racist and fascist propaganda, and combat Holocaust deniers. According to the Russian news agency TASS, the spread of fascism was a real danger in the world, hence the proposed resolution. The activities of Svoboda and other groups in Ukraine would make this resolution especially important for the Russian government. On October 22, 2014, TASS reported that while most of the UN's 193 member nations voted in favor of the law, 115 voted yes, 55 countries abstained from voting on the law. Only three countries voted against it, Ukraine, the United States, and Canada. The conservative Canadian government, while citing a history of fighting racism, did not vote in favor of the resolution for fears that its narrow definitions were counterproductive and too restrictive upon freedom of speech. And some of the and governments of these countries might not have a problem with fighting fascism, but they would also be concerned that by fighting fascism without mentioning communism, they would see this as a, as a problem. To understand Russia's view of the Ukraine situation, it's also important to see how it treats its other foreign policy concerns. Here we will look at just the Arctic. Russia has important interests there, as reported in December 2013. This was when Russia started restoring seven air bases in the country's northern regions. These air bases, Putin said on December 10th, 2013, would help Russia monitor the situation in the Arctic. Just a week earlier, Stephen Harper included the North Pole in Canada's land claim, which was to, to be submitted to the United Nations. At that time, Russia, Canada, and Denmark were disputing a landmass called the Lomonsov Ridge, which goes, quote, from Canada and Greenland via the North Pole towards the new Siberian island, according to an article on the website Russia Direct. There is vast potential for underwater natural resource development in this region, including oil extraction. In establishing a military presence in the region, Russia hoped to protect its potential interests there. It also drafted a bill called On the Arctic Region earlier in 2013. The legislation guaranteed environmental protection for Russia's Arctic region. It restricted foreign economic involvement there, partially by making sure that the Russian ships got priority passage and carried 70% of the freight passing through the zone. This protection was deemed necessary because in the early 2000s, the United Nations rejected a Russian claim to include the Lomonsov Ridge as part of its shoreline. 
Yet, despite the Arctic's importance to Russia, the Russian government was still willing to discuss the issue of polar land claims with Canada, even during the Harper era. But as we've seen, the issues of Ukraine and Crimea were completely different. With Russia, Canada was forced to, quote, agree to disagree on those subjects. In making this point clear, a Russian official once asked the Canadian government, quote, where's Canada? Where is Russia? And where is Ukraine? They told Canada that Canada was physically distant from the situation in Ukraine, while Russia was right next door. Thus, the insinuation was made that Canada did not have the authority to interfere. Ukraine is a much more important for Russia than the Arctic. With regards to the Arctic, there are no fears of fascism. And in Russia's view, NATO is not as much of a factor in that part of the world. Ukraine is also former Soviet territory. Putin has regret, expressed regret over the Soviet Union's collapse, and Ukraine has been identified as a Slavic brother, according to political scientist Dina Spe Speckler. Now, I must say here, it's we shouldn't make too much of Putin's point about the Soviet Union collapsing, because he also did has he also has said that we shouldn't want to return the Soviet Union. So when people try to say that Putin wants to rebuild the Soviet Union again and everything like that, that's it's not what's happening. At times, there have been rumors that the, there were plans to turn the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics into a Novorossiya, or a new Russia, but this also didn't happen. And unlike Crimea, these People's Republics were not integrated into the Russian Federation. So, so that's the thing here. So Russia is willing to negotiate with Canada on issues such as the Arctic and terrorism. But when it came to Ukraine... This was a completely different issue. So kind of compartmentalizing um, the issues. And so they're willing to negotiate with Canada on these issues, but not this one. Here it is useful to keep in mind the words of Nicholas K. Gvostiv and Christopher Marsh, who co-authored the book Russian Foreign Policy, Interests, Vectors, and Sectors. In that book, fairly early on, they make the point that Russia is the only country that shares frontiers simultaneously with Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, the Middle East, China, Korea, Japan, and the United States. And then if you go north far enough, with Canada. So in this book, they, they mention as well, Gvostev and Marsh mentioned that they will have different sectors. They will have, Russia will have different sectors of interest, different vectors of interest. And so... I guess in a way, you could word it in a way that Russia had different foreign policies. So for And some things that might surprise you. For example, um, Russia can have can support Syria in, in its civil war, yet at the same time have good relations with Israel, Syria's, one of Syria's rivals. Um, Russia can have this rivalry and really tense relationship with the European Union and the United States, especially under the Biden administration potentially now, but also have a strategic partnership with South Korea. So it can compartmentalize many things. Um, and also, when we're talking about Canada, remember I mentioned that Russia is willing to talk to Canada about the Arctic. We Canada, uh, they're willing to talk about terrorism and so on. But with Ukraine, they're not. So they are compartmentalizing. So Russia is willing to talk to Canada about the Arctic. And um, pretty soon, uh, Russia will also be, be leading the Arctic Council. Um, but at the same time, when it comes to Ukraine... And Canada's interest in Ukraine, Canada's um, support of Ukraine, and so on, Russia will not 
um, negotiate in that way. So it's a way of compartmentalizing. We'll talk in this way, we'll talk about this way, but we won't talk about this. And largely in part to Russia's um, practice of compartmentalizing not just regions, but also issues with some countries. So the Russian embassy in Canada's website talks about bilateral relations between the two countries, saying, quote, diplomatic relations between Russia and Canada were established on June 12th, 1942. Very interesting, just during World War II, which Russia has commonly used as an example of, this is how we can cooperate with the West. Look at how the, the West cooperated with the Soviet Union in World War II. Um, also, so there's talking about a lot about dialogue was developing between Canada and Russia before the Ukrainian uh, before the Ukrainian crisis. And so it also talks about how uh, it says, quote, after the election of Justin Trudeau as Prime Minister of Canada in 2015, despite new Canadian government declared intention to resume dialogue, the situation hasn't changed much. So that's much in line with what I was talking about before, where the Trudeau government, uh, the Liberal Party talked more about dialogue rather than giving the cold shoulder like Stephen Harper's conservatives did. But in the end, not much changed. Canada is still a NATO ally, as even Putin admitted. So it talks a little bit about uh, some meetings between Trudeau and Putin at uh, G20 summits and so on. Um, and in relation to the Ukrainian crisis, it mentions that some uh, Canadian imports were limited, such as agricultural um, items from Canada. Um, but at the same time, there was willingness, the, the embassy site reflects willingness to talk about some issues, such about trade and, again, fishing and navigation in the Arctic, calling um, inter this international cooperation in the, quote, northern dimension. And so there's a lot of uh, officials, experts, and other people talking about the um, Arctic between Russia and Canada. So uh, at the very end, and this, this thing is, this this uh, talk about bilateral relations on the embassy's website, it's very short. It, if you printed it out, it'd maybe be about a page. The basic position of Russia, quote, it says... The basic position of Russia regarding bilateral relationship proceeds from the necessity to continue interstate dialogue on the basis of reciprocity and mutual respect of national interests, having in mind the potential accumulated in previous years. So, previous years being before the Ukraine crisis. This approach is met with understanding by members of business community and political circles who believe that Canada's Self-isolation from Russia is counterproductive, particularly in such vital areas as the northern dimension, you know, the Arctic. Trade and investment, counter-terrorism, being neighbors across the North Pole and the Pacific Ocean, sharing a common passion for hockey, Russia and Canada can and should maintain stable, predictable relations. So this is fairly uh, common talk. Like, even, even with the Biden administration's talk about, um, you know, um, continuing a strategic rivalry against Russia and so on. Even the Biden administration will talk about meeting the Russians where they're at, in where it's of interest to the United States. So Russia's kind of saying the same here when it comes to Canada, talking about with a mutual respect of national interests and so on, having build that mutual interest, they're willing to meet there. So what we've been talking about, the start of the Ukrainian crisis, and sanctions and counter sanctions and and talking about um, democracy, territorial integrity, but also defending the rights of Russian people, the strategic concerns such as NATO expansion and so on. 
what has Canada's effect been on Russia? The Liberal Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has at times criticized his Conservative predecessor, Stephen Harper, for Canada's diminished voice on the international stage. Trudeau said that this, was, this caused Canada to have no appreciable effect on mitigation, mitigating Russia's actions in Ukraine. But one University of Toronto analyst has suggested that in reality, Russia would only listen to the United States or Germany. Canada wouldn't have an, a chance to influence Putin. The United States, says Randall Hansen, is a superpower, so Russia is forced to consider American actions and threats. Germany is a European nation in close proximity to Russia. And as we've seen, Russia has important economic ties to Europe. Germany is thus potentially more valuable to Russia than Canada. On the other hand, Canada does not have significant trade relations with Russia, and Canada isn't powerful enough to strong-arm Putin into anything. Because of this, Hansen suggested that the Russian president can largely ignore Canada's sanctions and threats. They only feed into Russian zapatophobia, or fear of the West, and Putin's narrative of the West being against the Russian people. Thus, Canada becomes a rather sad, quote, paper tiger. The effectiveness of anti-Russian sanctions from Canada and, and elsewhere can be roundly debated elsewhere. NATO's deterrence efforts can be said to be a good thing for Western solidarity, though Russia, of course, feels the need to respond to them. Upon winning the Canadian election of 2015, Justin Trudeau tri triumphantly kept saying that, quote, Canada is back, contrasting himself with his predecessor. But Russia is also back, said a European official just months earlier. Commenting on Russia's historical lack of military presence, this official said that Russia did not have the resources to exercise much influence in the world, but now Russia has that power. The Russians are back on stage, he said, and they are here to stay. So I think that wraps it up on this general overview of Canadian-Russian relations post-Euromaidan, but uh, we could also look at specifically on Canadian-Russian relations in the Arctic and also in Canadian-Russian relations uh, before and during the Cold War and after the Cold War before Euromaidan. So there's a lot we could look into, but for now, we will call it a day. It is right now 11.03, and I need to start thinking about sleep <laughs> as well. So thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and keep your ears peeled for more, and we will talk to you later. Keep safe in this um, sometimes strange and scary world, but um, please keep your, uh, yourself safe, keep healthy, and be well. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.